Now, if you open your Bibles to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. Just a couple of weeks ago, uh, there was an article published in the Financial Times, which is a newspaper that is published for the elite in the financial world. And the columnist's name was Jonathan Guthrie, and he released an article that was about the love life of birds. Fascinating, right? Well, he wanted to track that down and to make some moralizations about it, and so he made this statement in the article. He said, scientists have long thought that birds were pretty monogamous, but it uh, but it's, turns out they're not as monogamous as we once thought they were in terms of their mating habits. But that's not, now notice where he goes. That's right after the statement, then there's the next one. But that's not a moral issue, and neither is human infidelity. Okay, so the birds aren't monogamous. And then he goes on to present human, I mean, some DNA evidence that confirms that the mating habits of the birds are not monogamous like they once thought. And then he doubles down, and he asserts again, it is futile to moralize about their, meaning birds, infidelity, as it is about humanity's infidelity. He moves a little bit further, and he kind of makes using the birds again. He wants to make a social statement about things like divorce. So he says divorce is not a social issue among albatrosses. That's good to know. As it sometimes is among people. And it just gives you a little window into the kind of relentless messaging that is going on in our culture to try and dismiss any sense of moral shame over human perversion of sexuality. In fact, our culture has in many ways lost its ability to be ashamed of their perversion. But it has not lost the ability to shame. In fact, it's elevating its relentless effort to shame especially Christians into silence. So if you would dare to speak against the moral perversion, which they call progressiveness, they're progressive. No, they're not. You just call it what it is, regression. (laughs) Actually, it's just perversion, simply. But if you will stand against it, then you are going to be a target of shame by our society. And shame is a powerful emotion, generally associated to guilt, But they're using it as a sense of humiliation to try to humiliate into silence those who would speak against their progress. And I say all that to say there's really nothing new under the sun. Paul is writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy near the end of his life. Paul's in a Roman prison. Timothy's in Ephesus. He's been there. He's dealing with the uptick of false teaching and false doctrine that's been coming into the church and into Ephesus. And in fact, he's going to name some people, which typically in my 30 years of pastoral ministry, usually when I get in most trouble is when I start naming heretical teachers because somebody likes them. So. Or if somebody thinks you're being mean to name them. Well, I'm just reminding you that Paul names false teachers. And names them... And really, even it's identifying their, their doctrine, we're going to see today that if we're going to be unashamed, we actually have to be able to point out and equip God's people to recognize the difference. 
But he's writing to Timothy who's facing. And Timothy is his dear son in the faith. He's facing the situation of a growing uh, false doctrine, of the possibility of becoming ashamed. Uh, He's being told that he's, you know, Timothy's going to face the prospect of the certainty of suffering for standing for the gospel. Paul's in jail. Paul is, it says in, this, uh, in the chapter, in, for, in the first chapter, he ends the first chapter of, of, of 2 Timothy by reminding Timothy that, you know, standing for the gospel is sometimes costly. All, all in Asia turned away from him. He reminds of that cost of the fact that there's been suffering, and in fact, he even invites Timothy to share in suffering. So if we look and just looking in 2 Timothy chapter 1, he says, don't be ashamed. So that theme, in fact, we'll pick that theme up, is again found in chapter 2, where we're going to be looking specifically today, this issue of not being ashamed. But Timothy needs to be charged by Paul in light of the circumstances he's facing. Don't be ashamed of Jesus, who died for you, was arrested, and died, and was rejected. Don't be ashamed, nor of me as prisoner. Remember, the Gospels put me in prison. But you be prepared to embrace, share in suffering for the gospel. But as he reminds them of that, he's also reminding Timothy that you're not alone. You'll share in this by the power of God. It is God's power that will help you to face these difficulties. And as he reminds them of the power of God, uh, he reminds them of just how powerful this work of God is. If you're following along and look back in this section, uh, note verse, he's, he uh, tells them that it is this power by which God has saved you. So don't be ashamed. And this is, this is the power of God. Uh, chapter 1, you look down in verse 9. I believe that's right. Don't be ashamed. And then he moves to, to uh, share in the suffering by the power of God. And what has God done? How powerful it is who saved us, called us with a holy calling. And none of this was because of you. It was all of grace. And he moves on to focus attention on Christ who has come and has abolished death, who gave his life to bring about your, your resurrection from spiritual death to eternal life. That God has done this. This is the power of God. And this power of God uh, through Christ is then brings life, a life that is eternal in nature to all that he saves. And so as Timothy, as you're going to face the difficulties and opposition, the threat of being shamed, the push to grow silent, Timothy, you need to not be ashamed. And you can only do this by the power of God. And Timothy, by the way, the Spirit of God has actually been given to you. You're not alone. You won't face the difficulty. You will not face a culture filled with shame that wants you to grow silent when you ought to be bold, when you should be light of the gospel and you're tempted to hide it. It is the Spirit of God who dwells in you. God came to dwell with us. And He is dwelling with us by means of His Spirit's presence in our lives and through the power of the Spirit at work in our lives, we can actually guard this good deposit. We can be good stewards over this gospel message. We can not bow that gospel message to the pressure of a culture. We can stand against moral perversion and speak the truth in love. We can actually do that because of the power of God at work in our lives. We need to be reminded continually that greater is He who is in us than He who is in the world. In this world that is filled with the pressure to try to silence the gospel witness. The opposition to the gospel is real. 
It's hard to take a stand. Sometimes you'll feel all alone. Paul did. He tells us that all of Asia turned away from him. He names uh, these two men who were probably members of the church in Ephesus, and they deep, so their name, their, their personal hurt is connected here. But there was one man, Onesiphorus, who was refreshing, and on multiple occasions was refreshing to the apostle. Knowing that Timothy would face the same kinds of suffering for the gospel, Paul points Timothy to his great need in chapter 2 to be strengthened by grace. The Holy Spirit's in you, will strengthen you by the grace of God. And as you're strengthened by this grace of God, then you are enabled to actually fulfill. And we, we looked at in the series in 2 Timothy, we looked at what it looks like to live a grace-filled life or the evidence that we're actually being strengthened by grace. So if we're going to stand unashamed, then we must have a life filled by grace, strengthened by grace, that then enables us to actually be those faithful teachers or actually to be disciple-makers. You're going to train up those who will train up others. That that's what's Paul's direct commission to Timothy, and I would say extension it is to the church. That this grace filling and enabling enables us to, to then be good soldiers who will endure hardness. Because we really believe that we've been called by God to engage in a gospel mission and gospel advance. That we really believe this world's not our home. That we actually dwell in rebel territory. With a gospel light to go rescue perishing people who've been held captive against their will by the devil. And you're on a mission to go with the gospel and see them released. So it's worthy of enduring hardness and, and running this race by faith, even as was read today, whatsoever is not of faith is sin, that we actually do believe that our life is measured by the approval of God and not by the approval of men. Then we can be crowned athletes because we actually run the race according to the rules. And we will be hard-working farmers who actually anticipate the harvest as we labor in the Lord's harvest field knowing there's other sheep He will bring into His fold. He fixes our attention forward and reminds us as we then are called to be strengthened by grace, well, where do we go to get this grace? Well, it's not out there hidden. We're actually invited to come into the presence of God and receive this grace directly. Come to the throne filled with grace and receive the help that you need to be the witnesses God is making you in this world. So come to that throne of grace and remember to whom you're coming. Jesus Christ, risen from the dead. The worst thing the world can do is kill you physically. Jesus defeated death. You have nothing to fear. Amen? So your boldness in the gospel, don't bow to the shame of a culture that wants you to grow silent. Because the Spirit of God dwelling in you enables you to take the gospel forward, remembering Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the victor. And why you're doing this? Why would you be willing to embrace suffering? Why would you share in suffering for the sake of the gospel? Why not be silent? It's easier 
Why not be quiet? Why get involved in unsafe people's lives? Why go to your neighbor? Why go out on visitation? Why talk to that guy at the store? Why take the time? Because people don't want to hear it, right? Why bother? It's just, it's just inconvenient or people get angry with me. Why do I bother? Because they're dying into a Christless eternity. And God has promised through your testimony He's going to rescue perishing sinners. Paul says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they may also obtain salvation. Why are we wanting to be strengthened by grace? Not to make our life easier. That we might be faithful to the mission. Unashamed of the Gospel. Or as he's going to use the language now, unashamed workmen. Workmen work. If they don't work, they're not workmen. They engage in the work that God has given to them unashamedly. And so they do so because of it really is a life and death ministry we've been called to. So approved workmen, see that language of unashamed again. Paul really focused the command in verse 15 as the fundamental command. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. A worker who has no need to be ashamed. There's the issue of not being ashamed again. And we took the time to review and walk into this because it's really just exactly what Paul tells us to do. You see it there in verse 14. Remember, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to quarrel about words which has no good but only ruins the hearers. And So he really gives us this first command and part of the, the debate or what, I mean, it's not really a major debate, but the question has to rise and you say, remind them, who's the them and what are the things? And so there's a couple ways we can look at it. Is that the them is the church or is it just them being going back to verse 2? So Paul is telling Timothy to be strengthened by grace and train faithful men who will train others. So the them are these faithful men. Remind them, those you're training. So there is certainly a specific reference to Timothy and Timothy's responsibility to raise up leaders and to teach them these things. And I think really the reference is that this is true for all of us. As we're being equipped by the Word of God, as we are being uh, strengthened by grace, we will engage in the faithful teaching of the Word of God and help others grow spiritually and remind them of the truths which we constantly need to be reminded of. We need to preach the Gospel to ourselves every day. We need to be reminded of whom we believe. And we have believed in Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. He has conquered sin and death. And our faith rests there. He is the one who rescued me from perishing and drew me to Himself and gave me life. Which means He's given me purpose and mission. And I need to be reminded of these things, regularly reminded because we are to engage in teaching these things. So that others will be able to actually stand against the inroads of false doctrine and false teachers. You know, the devil is a very skilled liar. The Bible tells us false prophets are in the world repeating those lies regularly. In fact, you can go to the Financial Times, the elite newspaper. For all of these highly educated, unbelieving minds, 
We have watched how that is pervaded into secular education. We've watched it now become a political football. We've watched how these ideologies continue to sweep, and then we watch professing Christianity try to find ways to bring it into the walls of love within the people of God. Redefining love, because after all, if those people love each other, what can you say about it? Redefining the whole issues of truth, and truth can be defined by your experience. So if you feel that way, it's normal, it's not against nature. One went so far as to literally suggest that if you can naturally do it, it can't be unnatural. The absurdity of the statement almost goes without reason to even counter it. I mean, I could literally, naturally kill somebody. Somehow that's now natural or normal. They're trying to put it in the realm of sexuality, but you, can, you make sweeping statements like this, and again, the absurdity of their statements just almost goes beyond any form of reason. But it does. Because that's the nature of sin's deception. It blinds people to truth, to reality. Paul wants us to live grace-filled lives by helping and equipping one another with the truth and calling each other to remember what God has done in our salvation. And this gift of faith is an overcoming gift, not to be overcome. You are actually overcomers. You see through the deception and stand for truth. But it reminds that we have to continually be rehearsing these. And the charges, the charge given, is not to quarrel about words. And he's going here in this quarreling about words as a reminder, ultimately, he's pushing forward that you're going to give an account on the words that we all will give an account of our words. Uh, in First Timothy chapter 6, what kind of words are they not to quarrel about? Well, if anyone teaches different doctrine that does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, we'll see in this text, false doctrine always produces more and more ungodliness. Truth produces a godly life. Truth believed actually sanctifies life. That's what Jesus prayed, right? Sanctify them the truth. Thy word is truth. So you teach those things in accord with godliness because there's some, and he ends that section by saying, some imagine or teach their false doctrine as a means of their own gain. In the section that we're dealing with, he identifies uh, people who are teaching a resurrection that has already happened. We'll talk about it in a little bit. But what Paul is really saying, you don't enter in and into this dispute of words, is that we actually never argue anybody into heaven. I'm not arguing about the gospel with you. I'm going to declare the gospel to you. I'm not going to argue about the authority of God's word. I'm going to declare the authority of God's word. That we don't enter into a debate about the authority of God's word or the gospel. Because we're not going to win and argue. I mean, unsaved people, their minds are not capable of being reasoned into heaven. We've got a lot of bad apologetics that have swept into Christianity. A lot of ideas of somehow let's find some neutral ground and middle ground and we can reason with people. And the church has been swept up into all the ways that the church wants to be a little more, uh, a little more accepting to the unsaved world, a little more inviting. And so church services oftentimes get made to be more appealing. All of these ways that somehow if we can just appeal to them and find common ground and speak to them on their terms, somehow we're going to win the day. All these bad apologetics have simply swept in the false doctrine into the life of the church. 
We're not called to enter into debates. We're called actually to declare the truth. The debates about the Gospel, I don't need to debate the Gospel. I mean, there's passages of Scripture that we might debate, and we may talk about different opinions and things like that. It's not what we're talking about here. He's talking about the nature of the Gospel is undebatable. It's clear. It's plain. This Gospel message is just central. You don't enter into a debate and quarrel about words about the Gospel. You don't enter into debate and quarrels about the authority of Scripture. Scripture is God's Word. You're either going to accept that or reject it. There's no middle ground. There's no playing ground here. We will either come under the authority of God's Word or we will be our own authority. And so this is what Paul is is saying. Don't enter into that fray because it is not a fray that believers are to enter. Don't go into quarreling. It only ruins those who hear. Prove workers so we, we will actually equip others to stand. There's the who and what they're reminded of. Sorry, I should have put that. What they're quarreling about. It helps if I advance the slides, sorry. Uh, and then the second point we look in verse 6, 15 is that approved workmen actually cut it straight. They correctly apply God's Word to their lives and to the lives of others. And so the command, the imperative command in this section is, uh, can be put and translated, has been translated, do your best. Uh, it, is, it is a call to do... To, To make really every effort to be zealous. The ESV, do your best. Probably not, in my opinion, the best way to translate that. But kind of do your best. Okay, we all just do our best. No, that's not what he's saying. He really is saying you need to be zealous, intentional, because you are going to present your life before God. And your desire should be fundamentally to be approved of God. That no other approval really matters. I mean, it's not that I run around and ask people to disapprove me. I don't go around trying to make people angry. It's not my goal in life. My goal in life is not to, to just be that which is a, a thorn in everybody's flesh. It's not the goal. But the only one approval that is fundamental to all I do is the approval of one who actually is giving me life and to whom I will present my life and accountability to. I will stand before the Lord and give an account of how I have spent the life He's given to me. And so it is His approval. And then the the, the ambition there is to be a worker who does not need to be ashamed because you actually have engaged in the work of God in a way that enjoys the approval of God. And that demands that we rightly handle the word of truth. I'm thankful that we are able to attend a church whose pastor is careful of the Word of God. He is a careful student of the Word. He's careful in his handling of the Word. He takes great care over that stewardship. That's a treasure, folks. You and I have been called to be, to recognize we will give an account with our life and it's always going to be back connected to what we have done in our relationship with God via the Word. What are you doing with that Word? How are you growing your ability to teach that Word? Who are you teaching it to? 
You and I are called to be disciples who make other disciples. We're to be growing in the knowledge of the Word of God to teach it to others. You want to be, you know, a long life journey. There's God, God in His infinite wisdom. He does a number of things in our life to grow us up. One, you, you, you start as a child. You get raised. You actually have supervision, hopefully. And along that way and journey, when you come towards adulthood, because it is from child to adult, you do know that, but anyway, it's another side sermon. We go there later, but... Uh, you become an adult, then God brings you maybe into a marriage relationship. And you know what He does? He gives you children. Maybe, hopefully. And all of a sudden you have these, this, this life that's completely dependent on you. And you realize if you don't take care of it, it's going to die. I mean, literally. And you've got to take care of all the needs, but now also you become its teacher. This child's teacher. And so much of your child's view of life is going to be shaped by what they learned from you. And God, in doing all that, is preparing for you, really, it's part of what God's preparing you to do spiritually. You and I are not done, hopefully you understand this. You're not, if maybe you're not a parent yet. Some of you have already raised your children, your grandparents' age, but you're not done parenting. Because you're to be engaged in actually seeing spiritual infants come to life. People who actually don't have life being brought to spiritual life, so they are spiritual infants, and seeing them grow under a teacher, one who cuts it straight, who will one day give an account to God for how you've taught the Word to others. So we can handle the truth with a forward look to this accountability that's coming. John would remind us, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth's not in him. Whoever keeps his word in him truly is the love of God being perfected, brought to maturity, that we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he walked. So we're growing in the knowledge of the word, keeping the word to hear Hebrew-wise, it means to hear, to obey. We come into the presence of God eager to learn that we would rightly handle the Word of God knowing that through that, our love for God is being matured. That we then engage in the work of making disciples just as Jesus raised up the apostles and poured life into them. You're being equipped by the Word of God, to do that work. As you look at the text, and as he calls on us to be approved workmen that rightly handle the Word of truth, I love that descriptive, because he is intentionally making that contrast because false teachers are teaching false doctrine, What you have been entrusted with is the words of truth. We have God's Word, true words, entrusted to our care. Then as approved workmen, we must avoid unbelief. And we do that, and he gives these series of of exhortations here. You're called on to present your life to God as one approved, a workman, able to handle the Word of God, able to teach others the Word of God, and then you must, if you're going to do this, you must avoid unbelief, and that demands exposing false doctrine and its dangers. And we see that in the text. Avoid irreverent babble. I love the descriptive. The command is to avoid. 
to stay away from. Keep yourself clear. Don't get involved. And then he calls it babble. It's that which is worthless. It's pointless. And he's really connecting the thought as you grow as one who knows the Word of God is able to handle it. You'll see through the shiny veneer. And false doctrine will have no appeal. You'll see it as worthless talk. Irreverent babble. As you look at a culture that's constantly trying to shame you, how do you see their messaging? Do you see it for what it is? Or is it somehow appealing to you? Does it somehow cause you to, well, maybe we shouldn't be so dogmatic. Maybe we're just a little too, you know, we're just not progressive enough. We need to come into this, this century, into this time, and realize people just process things differently. They look at life differently. Yeah, they're looking at life differently, all right. Because they don't know the truth. And they actually need to see the contrast. A life that knows the truth reflects that truth and how it lives. Which will stand in contrast to a world living in darkness. Avoid. Why? Because it only produces more and more ungodliness. Jesus would say by their fruit, you will know them. Speaking of false teachers. By the wolves that come in sheep's clothing. Their truth, what they're, quote, offering, what they're selling, this false doctrine is going to simply produce people moving further and further away from Christ. You teach the devil's words, you teach the devil's ways. Proverbs chapter 4 an opportunity to teach this morning and teaching in Proverbs. And one of my favorite verses, Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for out of it flows the streams of life. It's that command to guard this treasure. The treasure is the truth of God. These words of wisdom that you're so high in your heart, these, this wisdom that God gives is to be treasured, stored up, and then guarded with all diligence, understanding that you live in a world where the enemy is trying to steal away the treasures God's given to you. And they do this by messaging, relentless messaging unstopping messaging with contrary messages filled with noise. We live in a culture where you're constantly bombarded. Whatever media source that you're, you're using, you're going to be bombarded with false ideologies and false messaging, and it's going to come at you relentlessly because the enemy will not quit. And you must be able to guard the truth of God that God through His Spirit is depositing in your heart to guard your ways because out of that heart comes all of the issues of your life. And only if you protect that truth that God is depositing in your heart will you be able to see through all the shiny veneers of false doctrine that promises pleasure delivers to some degree an immediate wow or an immediate attraction that gets people addicted into that false ideology and then leaves them in death. False doctrine cannot strengthen you. You will not be strengthened by false doctrine. You will not be led away from ungodliness, from the sin struggle that's in your life by false doctrine. It will not equip you 
to do the work of God, to be a workman. It will not encourage your heart in the work of God. Paul says this danger is this danger. You look at verse 17 and he continues to expand on this danger. It spreads. MacArthur said of this text, false religion and satanic lies spread faster than truth because sinful human heart, the sinful human heart is more receptive to them. So why does the Financial Times, supposedly an elite paper, would run an article that has such folly in it? Because they believe it. Because the sinful heart will make much of self believing a lie then claim themselves to be wise. I was in Florida, pastored there for 11 years. We went down. You want to talk proud people? Any of you are familiar with Scientology? Scientology is so Elton Hubbard, bad sci-fi writer, created a religion to get rich. Okay? It's just reality. But he tells all these people, they bring them in, and so you've got superstars, uh, so all kinds of actors are, have been brought up into it because the idea is you're going to get in touch with the spirit being that's in you, and you're going to have superpowers. In fact, they have a program called Superpowers Program that you get in touch, so you can predict the future, you can be in control of everything, you're going to be rich and health. So it's a, another form of a health and wealth, but it's not really a gospel because it's all the power that's in you. And they love to brag that they're the fastest growing religion in the world. Can I just remind you that anything that's the fastest growing in the world is like a cancer? There's a day when the Mormon church was the fastest growing church in the world. It's a day when the Muslims were the fastest growing in the world. Maybe in the first century at Pentecost, Christianity was the fastest growing in the world. Maybe. And just a real percentage jump kick right now. Since then, Christianity has spread little by little. Country by country, city by city, life by life, person to person. Because the gospel is meant to be shared in the context of a life. A life that actually reflects godliness. And the third warning just is so profound, because here's what happens. People swerve from the truth that means to abandon it. Not just avoid it a little bit but actually to abandon. And the resurrection they're claiming, so they can't be claiming, mean, Jesus is already resurrected. They're alive, so they haven't experienced the bodily resurrection. So what resurrections happen, most understand that what they're suggesting is that you're really not going to have a bodily resurrection just when you came to believe you've experienced a spiritual resurrection. So that, that's all that's going to happen to you. And Paul understands this is a direct assault on the Scriptures and God's promises. And so he is standing in to say that false doctrine must be turned aside. Because it will upset the faith of some. And that upsetting is not, again, another good, not a real good translation. Because it's not like, oh, man, false doctrine might make you mad sometime. Oh, it's, that's terrible. No, he's talking about upsetting as in overturning it. As in that there are those who profess the faith who then get sucked into false ideologies and follow them and turn away from the faith. And so that obviously leaves a final question is where we're going to end. Then how bad is it? It can turn the faith of some over. So what, what's the extent? And then Paul ends this with Timothy really as a word of encouragement, but also connecting to being unashamed uh, as a worker is, look, here's the thing. God knows who are His. 
But when he's coming back to this false doctrines coming in, you've got a culture all around you trying to shame you to silence. You've got all this pressure on the gospel. You've got people that once professed that maybe you have them in your family. I know I do. People who once identified with Christ, who said they believed, now they're turning away. They've drawn into the world. They believed ideologies that they once would have, would have rejected, but they're sucked up in there. And so what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, God doesn't lose any of this. False doctrine is dangerous. It needs to be exposed. You need to know the truth. Expose the error. But you're doing this with this absolute confidence. Those who have actually been born again by faith, that faith cannot be overcome by false doctrine. It cannot. The faith that God gives is a forever faith. An enduring faith. It can get confused. It can struggle. It can go through periods of backsliding. I mean, I've said this before, but, you know, I wouldn't, uh, having read the story of Lot, I would not come to the end of that conclusion that Lot was going to be found in the Hall of Faith. But he is. And because he's there, I know that his, right, his righteous soul was vexed, which was not evident in the Old Testament texts. But the New Testament actually informs me that Lot was vexed. Now, he paid a heavy price for his compromise. So, I don't say all that to say maybe it's, you're okay, go live like Lot. What I'm saying is just what Paul says here. All who name the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. That's what faith actually does. When we live by faith, our lives will be characterized by an ongoing departure from iniquity. Why? Because we're actually, as we read in 1 Timothy 6, we're pursuing godliness, righteousness, love, peace. We actually are in pursuit of the right things. Thus, we're running from the wrong ones. Faith is not going to be attracted by the shiny things of false religion. The false promises that will never deliver, but only bring death. Faith sees through that veneer. But your only way you're going to see through it is to know the truth. To be a workman. You know, it actually takes time in the Word. It takes coming to church. You know, some of you are going to be, some of you are being note-takers. I'm a note-taker. I love to take notes. It causes me to remember what I'm hearing. Because I want to leave and actually remember what I've heard. I want to think about it long. We become so used to hearing a message and then forgetting it that fast. We just move to the next one. We move to the next one. We move to the next one. God is calling on you to be a workman in the Word of God who's going to actually rightly handle it. That means you come having your mind filled by the truth of the Word of God as you hear it. Then you process that truth because you want it to guard and really fundamentally change your life, your heart. You live a godly life out of that well of what God is doing. That's why we protect our heart with all diligence. We want to be workmen who are unashamed. And when we are rightly handling the word of truth, we will never be ashamed by that truth. And the evidence of it is how we proclaim it. And how it leads us from ungodliness. As we turn away from sin. So are we workmen, unashamed, 
unashamed workmen rightly handling the word of truth. It's the key to being strengthened by grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you.